Well, I want to start off just by saying the obvious that I think my wife is a treasure. She is smart and goofy and a good skier, good at soccer, and a great cook. Uh, And not only is she a great wife and a great mother to our kids and just a great woman, but she's really good at finding deals on Priceline.com. You've heard of Priceline.com. Now, this is not a commercial. I, I mean it. But Priceline is this website where you can bid on different travel deals. With the pace of our life, just pastoral ministry, it just sometimes gets insane. And so sometimes we like to, to pull back and just go somewhere for a weekend or just get away. Uh, but we don't want to spend a lot of money. And with Priceline, you can name your own price. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Now, there's a trick to it all, and I don't know what it is, and that's why I'm doting on her. Like, she knows how to do all these tricks and find these great deals. For example, one time we stayed at the Edgewater in Seattle for like 80 bucks a night. Uh, Corey was at the front desk doing something, and I went out to get our bags, and I come in, and I find out, oh, we've been upgraded for free to this uh, Oceanside, or, you know, the seaside room with a balcony. And I found out that, uh, you know, it was because... The front desk guy thought she was cute and was flirting with her. Now, did I, did I go punch him? Uh, no, I, I guess I have a price as well. <laughs> it was a pretty nice room, so it was okay. Now, that's just, a, that's just a light-hearted example, but I think it introduces the idea that whether we think about it or not consciously, every one of us has a price. Uh, that subconsciously, we're always assessing the cost, and which is a good idea, like if you're going to buy a new car or, uh, or you're going to the market, you, you should assess the cost. Everyone has a price. Like I would pay this much for a New York steak. I wouldn't pay that much. All right? So we, we all kind of do this subconsciously. But what about ethics? Like if I were to ask you, do you steal? Well, no, of course I don't steal. Well, you know, what if the apocalypse happened and you had to care for your family and, you know, you had to, uh, maybe you had to steal some food, you know, and there's all these scenarios. I'm sure Ryan's ethics class has some good ones. Or what if, you know, I always think of my kids, like, no, would you kill someone? Well, no, I wouldn't kill anybody. But what if my kids were taken captive and I had like a clean shot on the jerk who had them? You, know, you, just, know, you just don't know these things. I'm not saying I would, I just don't know. I think the point is that we all have a price. And we all have a price when it comes to following Jesus. How far are we actually willing to go to, have a, to follow him in obedience? When is the last time your discipleship under Jesus cost you something significant? When is the last time you could say with genuine clarity, I carry my cross daily? Or, I die daily with Jesus, like the Apostle Paul says. This evening we continue on in this series we started last week called The Road to the Resurrection. And we're talking about the passion narratives in Matthew. That's the last days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross and is resurrected. It includes Matthew chapters 26, 27, and I think 28. I think the resurrection is included in that. Um, In our text tonight, we are going to encounter a betrayal. And we're going to encounter in that betrayal, I think, a mirror that we get to see our own reflection. And it's going to, this mirror is going to ask you and I, what is your price? What is your price? Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 14 through 25. 
Those who have ears, let them hear. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And they were eating and he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You said it yourself. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Uh, And we pray, as always, Lord, that we wouldn't just hear a story or even something from history. But, Lord, we would be confronted with your living word. Lord, that you would change our hearts and our minds, that you would change our lives. I thank you that your word does not come back void, where it is preached and proclaimed and read. Lord, do your work in us this evening. Amen. You may be seated. This whole passage with Judas and the betrayal, it breaks down really naturally, like just kind of exegetically into three nice sections. I'm going to call them scene one, scene two, and scene three. So think of it as a drama, if you will. Um, But we have to remember that this little passage we're looking at tonight is part of a much larger whole. It's part of chapters 26, 27, and 28, which, as I said before, are called the Passion Narratives. And so what I want to do, just in case you missed it last week, is I want to read the prologue to the Passion Narratives, because it kind of has a lot to bear on the rest of these chapters. So where I'm reading from now is Matthew 26, 1 through 5. And here's how it goes. When Jesus had finished all of these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Pause there. Okay, Jesus is introducing a new section in uh, in his teaching. He is declaring to his disciples what is going to happen to him. He tells them, in two days, I'm going to be betrayed for crucifixion. Okay, he he says that. The point is, that Matthew is trying to, to point out here, is that Jesus is in control of what's going to happen to him. He is speaking it into existence. He's saying, here's what's going to happen, just so you're not surprised. I'm not surprised, by the way, and I'm still walking into this. All right? Jesus speaks this into being. Now, I pick up in verse 3. 
Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, and then, and then it starts, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. All right? Jesus proclaims it's going to happen. Then the leaders plot his death. All right? Last week we looked at the passage where the woman came and anointed Jesus. She broke open a jar of ointment that was worth a whole year's wages to a common day labor. It was very expensive. The disciples were furious that this happened. They thought her actions were inefficient and wasteful. That money that the ointment could have uh, gained at the market could have fed just so many of the poor. Jesus, though, defends the woman's actions and declares that wherever the gospel, the good news is proclaimed, that this woman, her deeds would be spoken of as well. Okay, now let's begin the first scene in tonight's drama. Jesus declares this about the woman. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me? To betray him to you. You notice how that sentence starts. Then. Then one of the twelve named Judas. Jesus declares he's going to the cross. Then the leaders plot his death. Jesus blesses the woman for her extravagant deed. Then Judas seeks to betray him. Matthew wants us to see that over all the details of secrecy and plotting, Jesus is actually in the know. It doesn't make his suffering any less. In fact, it makes it intentional, which to me is just amazing that Jesus would know all of this betrayal is going on and still walk forward to the cross. In this first scene, we get a glimpse of what's taking place in secret. Like the disciples don't know what's going on here. Just Judas. Judas has gone off his rocker. He's cracked. Okay, And, and why would Judas do this? Why would he betray Jesus? There are literally volumes of works speculating about why Judas did this. I'm not kidding you. Like Go, go to the uh, theological library sometime or a, 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 journal, a set of journals and try and look up this subject. It's just more than you could possibly read. In our text, Judas' motive seems to have something to do with Jesus receiving an anointing from this woman. Not only did Jesus, his master, not get angry with her about her waste of the ointment, but he said that this no-name woman is going to be spoken well of wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Well, what about Judas? He'd given up three years of his life with the other 11 disciples to follow Jesus. Are they going to be famous? Maybe he was jealous. He had been following Jesus on these vagabond adventures. He'd left his life behind him. Don't they get any recognition? Maybe Jesus didn't meet Judas's expectations. He wasn't really acting like a Messiah. At least not the Messiah they were hoping for. When was Jesus going to get around to crushing the Romans? When was he going to reestablish the nation of Israel? When was the revolution going to start? You know, every time Jesus starts to gather a crowd, he says something weird or hard 
that makes them all run away. Like one time in John's gospel, all these people are following Jesus. He says, you know, you don't want to follow me. You just want the food I can give you. Get out of here. And then another time, a crowd's coming over. He says, hey, if you really want to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, didn't Jesus ever take a, a, a seminar in church growth movement or something like that? I mean, maybe Judas was just mad at him for that. He's frustrated. Or maybe Judas had pure motives. Maybe he saw the potential Jesus had to heal more and serve more of the poor. You know, sure, Jesus did a lot of great things. He healed here and served the poor and cast out demons. But then he just would move on to other towns. Maybe Judas was just frustrated with Jesus' inefficiency. He could have set up a booth in Jerusalem, had everyone come to him. Maybe that pushed Judas over the edge. Yet another issue... And definitely part of the problem was the fact that Judas was greedy. John's Gospel tells us that Judas was the treasurer of this band of disciples. He handled all the donations, and he would be the one that would go buy food for the poor. You know, it it was an important position. John also tells us that Judas used to pilfer from that purse. He was an embezzler, one of the first, I guess, I don't know. But was he greedy enough to kill Jesus for money? More on that in a moment. Luke's gospel and John's as well suggest that Satan influenced Judas in his betrayal of Jesus. That's kind of an interesting theological crossroads, by the way. It's not really the point of my message, but I feel like we have to talk about it a little bit. Satan is clearly involved in Judas, and I believe he's involved in every murder. Like, it is demonic to take the life of a person made in God's image. That is not right. But let us be clear, Satan's influence doesn't take away Judas's responsibility. The Satan, which is literally the accuser, acts upon our thoughts and feelings and inclinations. He manipulates and amplifies, but he does not and cannot force us to do something like this. So here's a warning to all of us. Every one of us has a price. We all have a price. And once your price is set, you open the door for evil to come and help you make your choice for you. Judas had a tipping point. He had a tipping point. He had a line. He wasn't willing to cross for Jesus. We don't know exactly what his motive or his tipping point was, but he had it set in his heart and his mind. Judas imposed a standard on Jesus. And once Jesus failed to meet that standard, Judas was open to evil and evil's influence. The devil didn't make him do it, but he sure helped him. Think about that for a moment. What is your price? If you have a low bar, you're going to fail. In the end, this is all speculation. We don't know exactly what Judas's motives were. Most likely, it was a convergence of a bunch of different little motives. Led him to take action. And what action was that? He went to the religious authorities, those who opposed Jesus, and said, What will you give me to betray him to you? What will you give me? The authorities offered Judas 30 pieces of silver, and he seems to have no problem with that offer. He doesn't haggle, just takes it. 
If greed were a motive then, it sure wasn't his main motive. Because 30 pieces of silver in the first century was not a lot of money. Certainly not enough to betray uh, someone that you've been following for three years over to death. To put this in a little perspective, we know from the book of Judges that Delilah betrayed her husband Samson for a sum of 1,100 shekels of silver. And that was like over 1,000 years earlier. So just for inflation, 30 pieces of silver is just not very much. Another layer of insult here is, comes from the Mosaic Law. In the Torah, it speaks if you own an ox and that ox gores someone else's slave, that that slave's life is worth only 30 pieces of silver. So here, Judas is betraying Jesus for the price of a slave uh, being gored by an ox, which is weird. The point I'm making is that Judas is not ultimately motivated by money. He probably could have demanded a higher price, but Judas is operating from some other part of his motivation. Like It just seems too venomous. There's hatred behind it. He wasn't just depressed that Jesus wasn't who he thought he wanted him to be, because if that were the case, he could have just left. He didn't have to be one of the twelve. Judas named his price, and his price was to inflict pain and humiliation on Jesus, to have him killed. I think Judas was so hurt by something that he made up his mind to betray Jesus. And the fact that he did it for only 30 pieces of silver suggests to me at least that he probably would have done it for free. Now, all of this about Judas betraying Jesus, it's important stuff. It shows us just the history of how this happened, of how Jesus goes to, to go to the cross. In fact, many scholars look at this story and they say this definitely helps prove that the Gospels are reliable. Because no movement in its right mind, if it were making up these stories, would ever have one of its founders be a traitor. All right? it, there's actually this thing in New Testament studies called uh, the mark of embarrassment. And a lot of times when scholars look at these texts and they see something that's very embarrassing, like when you have Peter denying Jesus, like you wouldn't have your leader, you wouldn't write that in if you're making up a story about your movement and the leader of your movement. Um, that has the mark of authenticity. So this is a very embarrassing text. I mean, Jesus had 12 main disciples and one twelfth of them betrayed him to death. That's not a good way to start. So, there's something to be said, like, this is just an important story. It helps us, the people of God, to know how our Lord went to the cross. But beyond being historical, there's something theological going on here as well. The prophet Zechariah was called by God to shepherd the people of God when they were rebelling against him. They had these false shepherds who were were hurting the people, extorting the people, and not caring for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And so God sent Zechariah to the people of Israel. And Zechariah began to minister to the poor and to the fatherless. And he began to confront these basically evil, selfish leaders. And he started to to take over. Well, what happened is the people rejected Zechariah. They just made his life miserable. They, they didn't want change. The people in power didn't like the fact that he was constantly saying, hey, you need to give some money to the poor. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, what happens is Zechariah just throws up his hands and says, fine, you don't want me to, to lead you anymore? That's fine. If you feel like it, you can pay me my wages. And so they give him 
30 pieces of silver. Just a tiny sum, not anywhere near what Zachariah's time was worth. And so he, on his way out of town, he gives it to this guy called the potter, who is probably the one who handles the precious metals for the temple, and he would uh, you know, melt it down and do different things with it. So he's just like, here, it's not even worth my time. 30 pieces of silver? You're kidding me? After all that? After all the stuff you, you people put me through? The idea is this then. Like Zechariah, Jesus is like Zechariah, sent from God to care for the people, but he meets resistance for it. He tries to love them like, a, like a, a mother hen trying to wrap her wings around a people, and they keep on resisting him. And in rejecting Zechariah and Jesus, the people were rejecting God's activity among them. They were bringing judgment on themselves. That's the theological kind of nugget behind what's going on here with 30 pieces of silver. All right, that's scene one. Don't worry, scene two is a little shorter, at least in my sermon. <laughs> scene two is all about the setting. Scene one is like this secret thing that we get to peek into that the other disciples don't know about. Scene two is the setting. Where does all this betrayal stuff take place? It takes place on or just before the Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples want to know where they eat the Passover, and he tells them kind of mysteriously, go into town, I know a guy who knows a guy, there's this guy, you know, it kind of sounds like the mafia, I know a guy, go in there and they got a place for you. It's like, alright. Um, he says, tell this guy that the teacher says, my time is near, I'm to eat the Passover at your place with my disciples. Like, no requests, just, it's on. It's almost like this preconceived, when you say that the time is near, you'll know what to do kind of thing. Alright. So we don't even know the name of this guy. Just, he knows a guy. Obviously it was someone, though, that Jesus could trust. And I like what uh, St. Augustine has to say about this very passage. He says, there are wolves among the sheep. But there are sheep among the wolves. There are wolves among the sheep. That's Judas. But there are sheep among the wolves. Among the people who would eventually betray Jesus to his death, there's a sheep in there hidden. That's where he goes to eat. Judas was a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, but Jesus knows a guy. He has people, sheep hidden among the wolves. And this isn't even the main point, but please know that when you feel isolated, when you feel alone in your service to Jesus, Jesus knows a guy. He knows a woman. You're not alone. There are people, sheep hidden among the wolves. Frankly, I'd much rather be the nameless yet faithful guy in this story than the infamous Judas. Yes, Judas is famous now, but... Anytime you say his name, it's almost like a swear word. Nobody wants to name their kid Judas. We've all heard of him. I've never heard of the guy who was the guy. But man, I bet he's with Jesus right now. I can't say the same for Judas with any kind of confidence. Finally, we come to scene three. The preparation for the dinner. This is where the story really, I think... This is where the story jumps off the page and has the potential to interact with you and I. There are 12 uh, eating the Passover with Jesus. The man they've devoted their lives to following. They were a close bunch. They traveled together. They trusted together. And as I've said many, many times before, in the ancient Near East, just like a lot of places around the world today, eating dinner with people was much more significant than just eating food together. 
if you shared a table together, you shared a meal with someone, it was sharing a life together. It was a mutual acceptance of one another. Which is why the Pharisees get so mad at Jesus for eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Like you and I, like we might share a table uh, at some family-style buffet and you, you don't care who you sit by because it doesn't mean anything. Maybe they smack their lips and you get mad about that, but it doesn't mean that you're associated with that person. But for Jesus' culture, when you ate with people, it was saying, I am with you, and you are with me. So here's this intimate meal with a group that it's about as loyal as you can get. Right? They've left everything. They've hit the road together. They've done amazing things together. Earlier on in this gospel, Jesus sends out the disciples to cast out demons and to teach and proclaim the gospel. They have seen amazing things. And Jesus, during dinner, says, Truly I say to you, which is ancient language code for, listen up now, I'm saying something important. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Oh, one of you will betray me. The text tells us that the disciples were deeply grieved. Each one began to say, Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. I like that. I don't think any of the disciples would have said, I think it's me. I think it's going to be me. But at the same time, they were at least humble enough to have an open mind to say, gosh, it could be me. Is it I, Lord? Surely not I. Jesus cryptically says, it's the one who dips his hand in the bowl with him. You notice what he does there? He gives Judas an out. He warns them all that even though the Son of Man must be betrayed, woe to the person who does it. Oh, it'd be better not even to be born than to betray the Son of Man to his death. Yes, of course, Jesus would have to be betrayed. He would have to go to the cross. It was God's plan. But it didn't have to be Judas. didn't have to be Judas. And then Judas says, Surely not I, Rabbi. Even his question betrays him. The others were grieved and said, Surely not I, Lord. Judas calls him Rabbi. Not a bad title. It's just not fully right. Yes, Jesus was a teacher. That's what Rabbi means. But he was also their Lord and their Master. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priesthood who challenged Jesus, they all called him rabbi. They didn't ever call him Lord. They called him rabbi. Judas's question betrays his view on who he really thinks Jesus is. Just a rabbi with some tricks up his sleeve who can maybe heal people sometimes. Not the guy I thought he was. So what about, what about us? Like, What does this story have to do with you and have to do with me? Well, it's not one of those passages, actually, that has a direct application. And as you know, I'm not a huge fan of just making up application. If it's not there, I'm not going to give you like three steps to a happy life. I don't think that's biblical preaching anyway. But if there's an implication, if there's an implication, I think, 
it speaks to the fact that all of us are capable of betraying Jesus. You know, it's telling that in the beginning of this section, it says, uh, it mentions the twelve. Matthew describes Judas as one of the twelve. Then again, Jesus is at dinner, and it makes sure to, to add in the detail, he's with the twelve. Why these details? Like, we know from the context that all the disciples are there. They've been there the whole time. Why does Matthew keep telling us it was the twelve? I think the reason is, is because Judas was very much one of the twelve. He was one of them. He was one of only twelve people that got to follow Jesus everywhere he went, see his healings, see his exorcisms, hear his parables, and then after Jesus teaches crowds in the parables, he's one of the twelve individuals who get to go back to the campfire and hear Jesus unpack those parables. So what did you mean by that? I'm confused. Well, let me, let me break it down for you. Maybe they had marshmallows. I don't know. But, I mean, he's on the inside. He's one of 12 people who got to be that close to Jesus. Plus, he was trusted being the treasurer of their group. No one was probably guessing it was Judas. Right? He's one of them. I think Matthew wants us to say with the disciples, Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. I'm one of the Christians. And if I ask myself that question, in all honesty, I must reply, yes, it, it is I. Surely I have betrayed your trust, Jesus. Surely I've sold you out. If not for 30 pieces of silver, then I've sacrificed your love at the altar of my selfishness, my fear of what others might say or think. I've betrayed you to my lusts and my greed. I've misrepresented you. In my anger or in my passivity. Yeah, it is I. And it is I on a regular basis. You see, all the disciples, don't forget this, all the disciples would eventually run away from Jesus. It wasn't just Judas. Judas meant to betray him. The others would eventually betray him out of weakness. Now hear this. I wasn't like reading this passage thinking, how can I make us all feel bad on Sunday evening? This passage isn't there, I think, to make us feel bad. This passage is a mirror that causes us, if we're honest, it causes us to see the horrible truth that every one of us has a price. And that we've all rebelled. And that we've all, from time to time, played the traitor. But there's really good news here as well. The good news is, of course, that Jesus doesn't have a price. He doesn't ever sell you out. He doesn't ever sell me out. He can't be bought. He gives himself because he thinks you are priceless. Jesus knew the whole time he was being betrayed by Judas. He knew his disciples would scatter and leave him. He knew that you and I would be no better than them. And he still went to the cross. He did it to rescue us from ourselves. He did it to create a new people for himself. A people to love. A people to enjoy for eternity. The question is not... Have I or haven't I betrayed Jesus? The question is, what do I do now? 
Do we grovel in shame? Do we do, you know, if we do that, if we're stuck in guilt and shame our whole life, we're basically denying the power of the cross. You know, Judas, would he betray Jesus? He felt remorse, but he didn't repent. He killed himself. Or we can turn our, our guilt, our sorrow over uh, being a rebel and a traitor, into motivation for repentance. The disciples felt horrible for leaving Jesus, but when he showed them grace, they became an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. How is it that 11 screwed up men become, you know, were their legacy? It's kind of sad for them. Hopefully there's better ones than, than you and me, but I mean, how is it that this thing is still going? It's the power of the Spirit. In them. That is why Jesus died for us. Not because we were good enough, but to rescue us. He already knows our condition. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being the good news. Thank you that the story, which is just a horrible story, um, and really makes me feel like. Yeah, I, I am a traitor. I am a Judas. Thank you that it doesn't leave us paralyzed or stuck or in shame. Thank you, in fact, that you show us the reason why you went to the cross. The reason why we need you. Lord, I pray uh, for those here who are struggling to receive your grace, to really believe that you love them even though they are who they are or have done what they've done. Lord, that's something that words and logic can't penetrate. And I pray that you would penetrate us, Lord, with your spirit. That you would reveal in our hearts your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for receiving us. Amen.